All right, guys. Uh, so uh, today, actually, we're going to take a break from our study through Revelation. So if you have your Bible, find the book of Hebrews chapter 12. So we're taking a break from Revelation for a couple of reasons. One is I'm not good at keeping a schedule. Uh, we're like way ahead. <laughs> I made the schedule and I can't even keep it. Um, so we've got plenty of time to finish the book of Revelation before the semester is over. And the second reason is because this was Venture Weekend. And the theme of the weekend, if you were involved in Venture, you'd know this. Even if you weren't, that's okay. Uh, the theme was the love of God. And I thought we might consider a passage this morning that, that pertains to that theme uh, and teaches us something about it. Uh, even if it's not the, the main point of the whole passage, it teaches us something about the love of God. And uh, so over the course of this weekend, just a review if you were there, if you were not at part of Venture, just to know we studied three different passages of, of Scripture uh, that focused on the love of God. And um, two that focused on God's love of us, and one, the third, that focused on our, our love of Him. Uh, the first was 1 John 4, 9, and 10. Um, that, that focused on, it wasn't that we were not the first ones who loved God. He loved us first, and he, he took our sins on Himself that we might be forgiven. 1 John 4, 9, and 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's a good, that's, that's two good memory verses if you want to commit those to memory. Propitiation means the removal of wrath, the removal of anger. And so um, through his death, bearing, bearing the consequences of our sin, Jesus, our substitute, propitiated the wrath of God. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for all who believe. And so that was the first passage we studied. Second passage was Romans 8. Uh, 28 to 39, that is one of the richest passages in the Holy New Testament, so don't have time to fully recap that one, but that, that passage highlights the fact that not only did God love us first, he loved us for, by first, we mean from all eternity in the past, uh, and, and so it, 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 Romans 8 highlights the unconditionality of God's love. It wasn't because we were any sort of way. Uh, we were very unlovely, and so he loved us unconditionally. He loves us eternally, everlastingly, perseveringly. We're more than conquerors. Um, that's, that was Romans 8. And then the third was from Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And how do you do that? By loving your neighbor as yourself. What I thought we would do this morning is to stay on the theme of the love of God. And by that, I mean his love of us in this case. And I want us to consider an, an important aspect of his love for us and maybe focus on an aspect that, even if it was mentioned, perhaps wasn't dwelt on very much, um, that, that, uh, that, is, that demonstrates his love. And I'm talking about a well-known passage in Hebrews 12 and how God disciplines his people, how God disciplines us. This, this passage in Hebrews 12 explicitly connects God's discipline of his people to his love for his people. Um, if you're open to it, you can just go ahead and look right there in verse 6. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. Okay? So, and that's important for us to remember because it's, 
if, as I reflect on the weekend and the, and the passages we studied, I can imagine someone, because I'm, I can be that someone, who it's in daily practice, it's one thing for me, for me to, to know that God loved me in eternity past, that he, he loved me also in Christ to be the propitiation for my sins, that one day when I literally stand before God, there's no, no condemnation. There's one thing to, for me to know that he will love me for, for all eternity going forward in the, in the future. It's, I can know all of that, and I can believe all of that with all my heart and soul and mind, but then in practice, as I walk through every day, be quick to forget that he loves us in the middle now in difficulty. Um, and not just that he loves me now during the difficulty, not just during the difficulty, but he loves us in and through the, the difficulty, which is the fact that it's not just difficulty. This pastor doesn't call it difficulty, but because it's it, that difficulty that comes into your life, and even not, if it's not just a difficulty, but even if it is difficulty, that difficulty, because it has the love of God behind it, it's called discipline, right? And so this passage is probably familiar anyway. It's a, Hebrews 12 is a familiar passage. But if you've been in our college ministry for a little while, you may remember it and be familiar with it also because about three years ago on Sunday mornings, we studied through the book of Hebrews. But it's a great, great passage. So uh, let's read it, read it together, and then uh, we'll, there's a couple things I want us to see in it. We'll begin in verse 3 and read through verse 17. Consider him, that is uh, Jesus. He's the, the theme of verses 1 and 2. So when it says consider him, it's consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, you ha- and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, that says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint, and, but may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative and necessary word. It's, it's a rich word. There's more here than, than we could ever mine the depths of in just a few minutes. Um, but I pray that you would give us eyes to see what you would have us to see out of it this morning, especially as it pertains to how you love us. Would you give us eyes to see it? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us minds to understand what that, what that looks like and feels like practically in our daily lives? And would you give us hearts to embrace that and, and, and wills to obey whatever you admonish us and exhort us to do? Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're taking notes, here's how I want us to divide this up. Just two things to consider, just two. First, I want us to think about the purpose of God's discipline. We see this in verses 3 through 11, the purpose of God's discipline. Um, I want to think about what that word and what that idea of discipline means in this passage, how we ought to think about it and the purpose of it from God's hand, okay? Verses 3 to 11, the purpose of God's discipline. And then for the remainder of the passage, verses 12 to 17, the responses to God's discipline. Because this passage is going to be clear. There are two distinct ways we can respond to, to the discipline of God in our lives. One that leads to perseverance and Christ-likeness and holiness, and the other one that leads away from Christ leads to a, a hardness of heart that we're, we're not going to study it, but if you read all the way to the end of this chapter, there's a warning, and that's what that warning is aimed at. Those who might respond in a way that it goes away from Christ leads to a hardness of heart. But let's dive in at our passage and, and look first at the purpose of God's discipline. Like I said, this is the main point of verses 3 to 11, and the most prominent word in it is the word Discipline. It comes up four times. It, it, you find the word discipline in verse 5, in verse 7, excuse me, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, uh, verse 9, verse 10. I mean, just over and over and over. Every verse talks about, in these early verses, talks about the discipline of the Lord. So clearly this is the main theme, God's discipline of us. But it's not, but what, if you read this carefully, the author of the book of Hebrews is not just concerned that you know that God disciplines you, not, not the mere fact that he does, but also he's, he's, he is concerned in how you think about God's discipline and how you think about God in that discipline. Um, why? Because it's, that's, intuitively that makes sense because we are today the same as his original audience would have been because what do we typically think about uh, when we think about someone disciplining us? What, do we think, what, how, what kind of association do we typically have with that? We, we typically associate the idea of someone disciplining us with the idea of punishment, um, that it's punitive discipline. And, uh, and, and, and if you've ever thought about these verses before, uh, and and that, that might be the primary idea that you take out of that. And it is certainly part of it. It's certainly part of it. I mean, 
it certainly seems that it's part of it, especially in the, the Old Testament passage that it quotes here in, from Proverbs 3. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the discipline there is being described as being reproved, being chastised by the Lord God. And there is, there's a bit of that in, in these verses without question. And Scripture really does teach that at times God brings things into our lives or allows us to suffer the consequences of bad decisions that we've made to discipline us in this way, reproving us, chastising us in, in, a, in a punitive way. But it's never merely punitive. It's never merely punishment. Christians have always confessed this. Um, this is, notice how we confess. When I say not merely punitive, here, I'm about to quote something that, that teaches you why we say it exactly that way. Here's an example of, from an old Baptist confession of faith, 1689, so it's old. So listen very carefully. Um, it's beautiful. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children. Leaves them for a season, his own children. Leaves them to what? To manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. Why? To chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment, for his glory, and for their good. Now, I know that was a mouthful, and it was, it's over 330 years old, but if you were able to follow that, what, what is the goal, and what's the purpose of, and notice it said, whatsoever befalls any of his people. That, that's everything, anything that comes into your life. What is the purpose from God's hand in it? What is, what it, why would he bring whatever that is into your life? The confession says, yes, sometimes to chastise you for a former sin. Um, but also it says to, to, to teach you the, that your heart is still corrupt, your heart is still deceitful, and to show you how corrupt and deceitful your heart is, um, to humble you before himself and bring you up to a desire to be closer to him. To, to depend on him in everything or to be more watchful in the future that I stumbled in that way in the past and, and, and the consequences I suffered and, and from that the God made plain to me, I'm going to be more watchful of in the future. All, he, does, he does all of it, not only the confession says for his glory, but for our good. So even his discipline, when it is punitive in this way for sins, to chastise us for something we've done, a pattern of sin, a pattern of rebellion, it's redemptive in purpose. 
uh, it is verse six. We've already noted it flows. It flows out of his love for us. Verse six explicitly says that. And so even when it is punitive, even when it is a consequence uh, that God allowed into my life because of a bad decision that I've made, and, it, and it's, he's allowing me to, to suffer that as a, as a punishment, even then it has a, a formative and a healing purpose in it, right? It's like um, another old hymn that we, don't, we regretfully don't ever sing, um, but it's worth knowing and at least reading the lyrics. God moves in a mysterious way. It talks, about, um, it talks about God's providence over the world. And wh- when it talks about God's providence, it means God's providence is over everything in your life. Everything in your life, God is providentially bringing into your life. And it says, that, that hymn says, behind a frowning providence. What does it mean by that? When circumstances are bad. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Right? And so the rest of these verses is about God's loving, uh, God's loving discipline in our lives. And it bears out even more that it is formative even when it is punitive. In other words, the discipline in these verses is not only described as something that God does to us, but because of our sins or, or something like that, but it's something that he instills in us. Discipline is something he instills in us by virtue of everything he brings into our life, which is literally everything. So how do we see that? Because look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Think about that first sentence in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So in that case, the discipline is the outcome of enduring. And you see that? And so it, it's not punitive, endure so that God can punish you in the end. It's formative. Endures so Christ-like discipline is instilled in you. So that you become more like Christ. I mean, what were the first two words of this whole passage that we read? In verse 3, consider him. Consider him. Consider who? Jesus. Consider him who endured. It is, verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. So consider him who endured. Jesus who endured. The man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 5.8 says, of the man Christ Jesus, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So you could say the father was disciplining Jesus through the things that he suffered. He was disciplining the man Christ Jesus through the things that he suffered, Hebrews 5, 8. And yet, God the Father said of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So when, when, when Jesus was being disciplined by his father, it wasn't because his father was displeased with him or didn't love him. So when we endure every trial, every hardship, hardships and trials that God sovereignly, in his loving wisdom, in his, to us what seems a frowning providence, brings into our lives, he's disciplining us in a, in a, in a, a formative way to be like Christ, whatever it is. So we don't have to think, what is he punishing me for? 
when, we, when we're being disciplined by the Lord, we don't have to say, what is he punishing me for? Because Jesus, of course, never sinned. And yet the Father disciplined him throughout his whole life as the man Christ Jesus, as our substitute, like us in every way, yet without sin. And what, what is, what's the whole metaphor that is embedded in verses 5 and 6 on God's discipline? Fathers and sons. Everything that God brings into our lives is to discipline us to be more like Christ with, with love behind every moment, just like a father and a son. Even when I give my children a, a task to do that might be unpleasant to them, or even if they do something wrong and I have to punish them in some, some way, as the father over their lives, everything I, my intent in everything that I bring into their life is love and formation into a man or a woman of God. Right And just everything God brings into our lives, every consequence for sin that, that, that he allows us to experience, as well as every other joy and sorrow, is out of his love for us, to discipline us to love Christ more and to be more like him in every way. Look at how that's spelled out in verses 10 and 11. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's always the goal. It's always for our good. It's always to share in his holiness. It always aims to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a beautiful phrase. So I guess two questions might arise here, just practical questions, if you've, if you've studied this much of the passage. Um, is God disciplining me? Might be a question that you've asked before. Is God disciplining me? Yes, if you're trusting in Christ. Um, he says so in verse 6. He, he chastises every son whom he receives. Every son. Every child. Not just the bad ones. Not just the special cases. Every child. How do I know he's disciplining me? Well, if you're miserable in a particular sin or pattern of behavior, that's a good clue. But all discipline, I feel like discipline is going on all the time. And all discipline has the same aim. Make us hate sin more, make us love Christ more. So we become more like him in the process. But it's not always easy, which is why verse 7 is what it said. It is for discipline that we have to endure. It's why verse 11 said, it's not always pleasant in the moment. It's painful in the moment. So it comes down to the second part of the passage. How do you respond to it? Let's consider that quickly. The responses to God's discipline. I'm going to aim to give you some time around your table this morning. I'm excited about that. It makes complete sense why verses 12 to 17 goes the direction it goes. Because if God's discipline in our life certainly joys that he brings into our life is also discipline if it's formative but when but 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 overwhelmingly the 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 hard things that come into our life whether or not it's it's chastisement for a sin or just your job and 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 he was a upright and a righteous man and it was it was not because of of uh, it wasn't a particular chastisement for any sin that he committed that those, God allowed those things into his life. 
certainly that's discipline as well. And it's, and it's because discipline most, we associate discipline most with those kinds of things that the, the latter half of the passage goes the direction it goes. If it's something that we have to endure to receive, and in that enduring it's painful rather than pleasant, then how we respond to it is precisely and absolutely the key to it. Will we endure to receive the discipline or the, for the discipline to be the outcome, or won't we? And so as we, as we press on and, and follow hard after Christ and, and have to endure hard things, he encourages us in verse 12 and 13, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And you go, what? Well, what, when you say, what, is, what does that mean? Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Straight paths for your feet. What? So I, I think the key to understanding what the author is doing in verses 12 and 13 and trying to hyper-focus on each phrase of that and say, what does that actually mean in practice? Um, let, me, let me give you a, a clue of something you see quite often in the, in the New Testament. And if you've been here for a while, you may have heard me say this before. He's actually quoting the Old Testament in those verses, verses 12 and 13. And a lot of times when a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage like we have here, his point is not just to draw your attention to those particular verses that he quoted, but to draw your attention back to that whole passage from which he took it. Does that make sense? Um, so the author knew that when he quoted these words, his original readers would have known, oh, those are words from Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. They would have been familiar with Isaiah. They would have been familiar with that whole passage. And that's helpful to know here because I think that's what's going on with this quotation. Yes, always look and see, look at the words that are being quoted, but always ask what passage is being quoted and take time to flip back at what was being quoted. And, if you, and read the whole passage, because if you do, you can, you can learn something you might not have otherwise seen, right? So let's do that in this case. Let's turn back to Isaiah 35. And when you get to Isaiah 35, you can hold your place in Hebrews. We will come back to Hebrews. When you get to Isaiah 35... And you look at verse 3, you can see the, the passage he's quoting in Hebrews 12. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, right? That's what he's, that's what he's quoting in, in Hebrews chapter 12. But like I said, I, I, I think the author of Hebrews knew that when he quoted this verse, uh, his people would have been familiar with the whole passage. It's like if somebody quoted the you know, one passage of amazing grace to you, the, the song, the whole song would come into your mind. When he quotes, when he quotes a passage from Isaiah, this one verse, they're going to they're go to the whole of Isaiah 35. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it has to do with how they would respond to the discipline of God of them then. This whole chapter is about God bringing discipline to Israel because of their disobedience and rebellion. And in verse 3... He, there he's encouraging genuine believers in it, within Israel uh, to endure in faith 
for their good. And, 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 and uh, look at the assurance he gives them. In, so he quotes verse 3. Look at the assurance he gives them in the, in the very next verse, in verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Even then in the Old Testament when he disciplined his people, he told the faithful within Israel, endure, I will come and I will save you. I have a good plan at the outcome of this thing. But how would the salvation come? In this passage, how does he say the salvation would come? He says at the end of verse 4, he will come and save them. But how would that salvation come? Remember, the author of Hebrews knew that they would know Isaiah 35. So look at verses 5 and 6. He just said he will come and save you. Verse 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Does that sound familiar? It should. It sounds like, it sounds like the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. It sounds like, what Jesus, sounds like what Jesus quoted when John the Baptist in Matthew 11 sent representatives to say, Are you the one, or shall we look for another? He quotes, he quotes a passage very much like this. And so the author of Hebrews quotes Isaiah 35 knowing that, it, that the God's, God's discipline of his Old Testament people Israel was rooted, it was rooted in the promise of a Savior to come. Stay faithful to the Lord even in the discipline because there's a Savior coming, right? Now if we turn back to Hebrews 12, I believe that the author of Hebrews knows that they would have known that passage. And when he quotes from it, he's reminding them that as they endure, New Testament believers, as they endure uh, God's discipline in their lives, that they were no longer looking for a Savior. Their Savior had already come. Jesus has already come and suffered in their place. Consider him. He's already suffered in their place for the forgiveness of their sin and the hope of eternal life. And so he's saying, as you endure, don't despair. Don't become bitter at God or at life. But know there's a good purpose and God hasn't forsaken you. He's already made you his forgiven child. Everything else in your life is simply to bless you and make you more like Christ. And there's only two ways of responding to it, according to this passage, believing that or not. And he lays out the two options. He says in verse 14, in the first part of verse 15, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And so as you as you go through life and as you endure hardship, strive for and pursue the holiness that God intends to produce in you through it. And he said, and it says, see to it that no one else fails to do that, to obtain the grace of God through their hardships. So one way, that's one way to respond to, to, to the formative discipline of God in your life. However it comes is, is, is to, to be mindful, what, is God, what does God want me to do? What does God want, what is he trying to form in me in this circumstance? And you don't have to, it's always hate sin, love Christ. That's always what it is. And then he, 
he mentions it's also possible to respond in another way, um, in unbelief. And that unbelief manifests itself in one of two ways. He mentions one way in the second half of verse 15. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. So rather than trusting God that he's working good in your life, even if you don't fully understand it at the moment, and it's painful, rather than trusting him, you become bitter toward him. You're angry with God. And that destroys a person. But another way that unbelief often manifests itself in those hard times mentioned in verse, is mentioned in verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. In other words, rather than becoming bitter, people just turn to a different God. And they look for pleasure elsewhere. Unbelief, and, uh, unbelief often appears in us either becoming by either becoming bitter and angry at God because of difficulties or by turning to other pleasures to try to drown out or forget the hardships and the difficulties altogether. By the end of the chapter, I, I said earlier that there's, there's a warning toward the end that responding to the discipline of God in, in our lives in that way and persisting in that, letting a root of bitterness grow in our hearts against God or finding finding comfort in other pleasures, which is nothing more than idolatry, it will have eternally significant consequences. Let me tell you just practically, though, a lot of times in a, in a, in a deep grief, when people suffer a deep grief, that, that Scripture is, could not be clearer. Even those deep griefs in our life, they come from the hand of God. But sometimes those griefs are so deep in that moment, people will say things that sound like unbelief. They will say things like, um, like bitterness toward God in that moment. But a, but a person in whom there is the Spirit of God and, and a person who is genuinely born again, God will, God will make plain to them His good and kind purpose and will sanctify them in that and, and come find them a year later, right? And they'll be singing a new song of God's praise and of God's goodness, even when it's hard. Uh, what this, this root of bitterness that this passage is talking about is a bitterness toward God that stays there and grows deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, um, these, This warning that, uh, that comes at the end of the chapter, which we don't have time to study, um, it, 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 it highlights the, the, the seriousness of seeing your life through God's eyes and God's purpose and pursuing the holiness that he's always trying to instill in you. The warning's going to uh, remind you of the eternal consequences of not doing that. Um, but even then, even though this warning comes at the end of the chapter, the warning is not the main motivator here. His main motivator in this passage that we studied is the love of God for us. He, he disciplines everyone he loves there's, there's love and goodness and kindness behind everything he brings into our lives. We, 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 can't, we can't pretend to understand everything that he brings into our lives, but we can understand that, that he is, as Psalm 145 says, righteous in all his ways, kind in all his works. And the longer we live and the more faithfully we endure, 
the better we will understand that. So you put, you put all this together, all that was emphasized at, at Venture Weekend, and you see that God was not only, He not only loved you in eternity past in Christ, um, He not only loved us in Christ to take away our sin, He loves us in everything He brings into our life now. And He will love us for all eternity going future. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Um, Thank you for these, the, the hard pass, or the, it's not a hard passage, it's a, but it is a passage that it's hard in this way. It's, the passage is easy, easy to understand. It's hard to put into practice. Um, I pray that you, we would, we would have a, uh, we would have a, 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 a godly, outlook on our on our lives we remember that you're sovereign over our lives in a loving way that we would um we would not blithely go throughout our life not 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 being uh, aware or not being discerning about the whys of the things that come into our life that we would be discerning about our lives and and, 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 and discerning about your purpose in our lives through anything that comes into our life. It's all for discipline. And pursue the holiness that you're trying to instill in us through it. I pray that that would, I think that would be us. I pray that that would be us. Lord, and I pray that you would help us to, to discuss these things around our table. Um, give us the help to do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.